The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Well, I'm also very pleased now to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Julie Castillo-Roger from JPL. Um, she's a planetary scientist specializing in water-rich objects from a modeling and experimental perspective, applied to the formation, design, and planning of planetary missions. And her uh, current activities focus on Ceres, uh, target of the Dawn mission, uh, Mars's moons in the uh, frame of human exploration program, as well as other small bodies uh, whose study can help constrain the early solar system. So uh, thank you very much, Julie, for talking to us about small sats for planetary exploration. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> thanks for the invitation. I think it's a great and exciting time to uh, and to talk about uh, small sats as a potential future for planetary exploration, considering that we are broke right now for flagship missions. So I want to acknowledge my, colleague, my colleagues, um, and especially uh, Andy Clash, who's involved me in the discussion about uh, <coughs> CubeSats and asking me about you know, what can we do with these uh, very neat platforms. Uh, Jonah Blacksberg, who, is, uh, provided, who has provided all information about instrument technology for this talk, and as well as a bunch of people I regularly work with at JPL, and I want to acknowledge it's very nice brainstorming we all, um, have on a regular basis on this topic. Okay, I don't know what was that. Okay, so here is my outline. I'm going to talk about small sats and planetary exploration, the current state of the art, uh, science drivers and requirements. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about instruments and especially uh, the need to bridge engineering and science and uh, instruments, uh, you know, the bridge between what can be done right now with CubeSat from an engineering point of view and what the scientists would really like to do with these platforms. And then I'll talk about a few ideas of uh, potential advanced concepts. So starting with that. So we, we, we've talked already about that. So far you have uh, this terminology for the different classes of small sats. You have the mini sats and lunar prospector is a very nice example of a mini sat with that has yielded a lot of very good results, uh, especially in the frame of uh, getting information of interest for the human exploration of the moon. Um, and then we have the microsats, and Sputnik is a cool one, probably the small, the first uh, microsat. And then we have the nanosats, and uh, with the uh, CubeSat, the one you be being at the edge between a, being a picosat and a nanosat, and then you have nanosats up to 10 kilograms. And then you have the molecular sats. I found that, I thought it was cool. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept, the mole sat. Um, and I'm going to focus on this class for two reasons. First, because the mini sats, I mean, they are very cool um, spacecraft. They can do a lot of stuff already. And we, we, we have various examples of that. Hayabusa is another example of a mini-sat that has yielded very interesting results. So they are of lesser interest for this talk. Um, the picosats, I mean, I don't think they can do much, so I'm not going to focus on that, but I want to focus on this class of uh, spacecraft that have the potential to drive a lot of uh, technological development and lead to a very innovative and low-cost ideas for the future. I also, so, so far we've talked about heritage and inspiration coming from Earth science for the application of uh, uh, small stats. I also want to point out that small bots in planetary science have been driving a lot of the technology, especially for small instruments, 
small memory card and so on, uh, autonomous navigation. And uh, in fact, uh, the next generation of uh, CubeSat that could be used for planetary exploration will draw a lot from all the technologies that have been developed for these various generations of bots. And here, that's the current state of the art. That's an image that was put together uh, for a recent workshop at Brown University about micro-rovers and showing the diversity and you know, very crazy ideas that are coming up right now in the field of uh, micro-rovers. And this is small uh, the equivalent of the, of the chipset that can be used for the exploration of cave on Mars, for <coughs> example. It can flex and move by itself on the surface of Mars. And many of these ideas are being funded by the NIAC program right now. So small sats, the CubeSats, and a little bit larger, are already involved in a variety of mission concepts. Uh, in, there are two versions. In one, uh, they are used as smart instruments on larger spacecraft. But there, there is another uh, type of uh, mission concepts that have them uh, basically uh, be responsible for the primary science done by the mission, and they are basically responsible for sample return, asteroid reconnaissance, and so on. So they are the primary spacecraft. There are aspects that have been less studied so far, but they are also very relevant, which is having them as basically sacrificial uh, elements. And I'm not sure this uh, works very well with NASA's philosophy to say, okay, we are going just to break them and to lose them and to send them in places where they are going to be destroyed. But you'd better send them, you know, these $20,000 uh, assets rather than your big spacecraft. So they could help very well. Uh, I mean, they are going to provide access to in-situ exploration for sure. And they could also be uh, sacrificial assets for reconnaissance, for example, in preparation for a sample return from a comet. So here are a few ideas, that very recent ideas involving small sats, uh, mini sats, and, uh, sorry, microsats and nanosats. So this one is in the category of microsat. Uh, it's a hummingbird charm. And that was presented a few days ago by Dan Scheld from N Science Corp. And the idea is to send multiple uh, hummingbirds. So you have a small uh, spacecraft, and, uh, but you send, you send swarms of them, and they work together to get information about asteroids. For reconnaissance, uh, they have a concept that also involves uh, uh, radar, and they also want to do sampling and send samples as well as images back to Earth. So that's an idea. Another idea that was dis discussed a few minutes ago is uh, the idea of uh, having uh, uh, CubeSats on solar sails. And sol this assemblage will go to Phobos, do a sample return, send a sample back to Earth. That's an idea that is being developed by Rob Seller and his team under the NIAC program. And that's also of great interest in the prospect of precursor missions for human exploration. And there is this idea of uh, using chipsats and deploying many of them. And here, I mean, it's a talk by, uh, done by Mason Peck in which these chipsats are just sent to Europa in plenty of them. And you know, don't let your preoccupation with reality stifle your imagination. When I see this picture, I think, don't let your preoccupation with pollution stifle with your imagination. Uh, <laughs> And you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a magical unicorn here going on. 
So I, I'm not going to be as optimist. I mean, I know there is a lot of excitement, but what I want to point out now is a challenge and maybe an avenue for addressing these challenges. So where to place the limit on size? I think it's when the size and the simplicity prevent discovery. And that's the big issue with which chipsets is that they are very small. Here you have a concept of chipset in which you have uh, photosensors that are going to, that are expected to detect variety of molecules. And the idea in this concept developed by Kent Rashford from JPL, also under the NIAC program, is to send these uh, chipsets in uh, Titan's atmosphere and uh, map for the distribution of these species, methane and so on, in, uh, in the atmosphere of Titan or uh, Venus and so on. The problem is that this approach, it prevents discovery because you need to know ahead of time what you are looking for. And planetary exploration, it's primarily about discovery, going to alien worlds, and we are looking especially for astrobiological signature, and we don't know what we are looking for. So there is a big difference in paradigm between Earth science, where you want to take advantage of these platforms to monitor and map uh, processes that are of great importance to, uh, to uh, humans and going to a different world and search for something that nobody has ever seen. So there is also a simple problem that maybe the requirements and the science may be very uh, stringent and one reason why we cannot, I mean we are limited in size simply, simply when the instrument pointing data volume and autonomy requirements are not going to fit. So another aspect is when the adaptation to the deep space environment, cryogenic environment, traditions, and so on, uh, planetary protection are going to impact the simplicity and increase the cost. If you send a CubeSat to uh, the Jovian system, but you have to shield it into a very huge and thick uh, container to prevent it being destroyed by radiations, basically you are not sending a, a cheap, uh, sorry, a light CubeSat. You are sending a big, heavy. Uh, system into space. So it's going to take the place of other big instruments and there is a science trait to consider here. And then there is a question of operational cost and I'm not sure, um, I've seen numbers about that, but I mean when we work with swarms of CubeSats, there is going to be operational costs cost possibly involved and especially when we are uh, working in, in deep space. So. What, so here are a few questions for, for you, for us to discuss. What is the nature of the responsibility to be granted to the nanosats? Can they do anything? Engineers will say yes. Very soon nanosats could do anything, and I believe it. They could, they, I mean, telecommunication technology is going to increase. Um, uh, thermal systems are going to increase or, uh, to improve. So I'm not worried about the fact that they could do a lot of things. But for what science? And here, I mean, the science drivers are not very clear so far. And the science return scaling with size is TBD. And the big issue is that the observational strategy for acquiring uh, observations that can lead to great science and great discovery has not, uh, is not being discussed. It's a very um, immature aspect of these recent mission concepts. So this brainstorming between engineers, technologists, and scientists remains to happen. It has not happened yet. So you have a very nice platform, like very cute uh, toy on one side, and then you have scientists with a lot of expectations. And the question is, how you, do you bridge the two communities? 
so far, I mean, I've done a, a little bit of science design and in general science drives the spacecraft design. But here it's different paradigm. You have a very nice platform and a lot of excitement. But what is the purpose for planetary exploration? It's not clear. Okay, sorry, my PC, uh, back to PC transition is not great. So, I mean, the, so far the paradigm has been about tailoring the spacecraft so that it uh, allows the uh, accomplishment of certain type of science. And now we have the box, you know, you have a box and what do you do with the box? So tailoring the spacecraft means, for example, having arms uh, in order to perform certain measurements, uh, sampling systems that can be extremely complex in order to enable um, uh, sampling within a certain set of requirements, and also preservation of the sample with a very sophisticated and heavy uh, sample return capsules. So, but now you have the box. So can you really do sample return with the box? So I'm going to talk a little bit more about science drivers. There are three main themes uh, uh, in the planetary exploration, um, not just in the decadal survey, I mean, it's always the same thing. The one is about constraints, the origins of uh, the solar system, the origin of life, and so on. And uh, so you go to an object to constrain the origin, like the moon, the origin of the moon, the origin of a system, like satellite systems, for example, or the origin of volatiles in, uh, on Earth and on Mars. That's the one way, one thing we are looking for, the origins of materials. Search for and explore astrobiological targets and planetary habitats with Mars and IC satellites as primary targets, but also looking at small bodies for, as sources of volatiles and organics, and then characterize and understand processes, that is the workings of solar system. So here um, I'm just representing these three main aspects of exploration. And in general, the workings of the solar system, I mean, they are of interest to certain experts. There is uh, someone who is specialist of rings and want to know everything about rings, and that's one process. And, but it, it, the impact and the you know, overall community is relatively uh, limited, and I have colleagues in the audience who may disagree with that. Building new world, origin science and origin of volatiles in the solar system, it's a big question. It's creating a lot of excitement, but not as much as looking for planetary habitats. There is a very, very strong interest, not just of the sci planetary science community, but also of the public for <coughs> that type of, uh, of exploration. So, in order to achieve these various science, we need to go to the surface of planetary bodies. And we need to go to the right place. So here you have an example of various types of small bodies. Um, for example, uh, so that's uh, Itokawa, you've seen these pictures already. And that's the Temple One. And what you see at the surface, and, and sorry, that's uh, a sketch of um, uh, NEO and showing the variations, potential variations in uh, composition at the surface. And what you see is that objects, not just big objects, big planets, but also small bodies have heterogeneous surface. And this surface is subject to space weathering. So in order to get the chemistry composition information about, um, um, so information about the astrobiological potential of small bodies, you need to go to specific places. For example, on Temple 1, you would need to go to places where water has been detected at the surface, for example. 
or you will need to go to a, for, for in-situ resources um, prospecting, you will go to a place where you know that the surface is fresher as a consequence of uh, mass wasting, for example. You need to perform analytical measurements. I think it's a very important aspect for the <coughs> next generation of um, space exploration is that we need to do more and more chemistry measurements at small bodies. So far, we don't, just don't have enough. So in the case of Enceladus, for example, I mean, Cassini detected these uh, magnificent plumes and people were so excited. Wow, there is act activity in Enceladus. That's just great. That's an astrobiological <coughs> target. That's exciting. But then, there were detection of, so if you want, this is imaging, and then there is detection of salts in the plumes. And then there is a deep ocean below the surface. So we could absolutely conclude that there was water near the surface. We could not do this just with imaging. The, the uh, inference of a deep ocean was too model dependent. But with the composition, you can go much further in, in the level of interpretation. You need to go to some extreme. I would argue that the most exciting targets are probably the most dangerous. You need to go to jets and comets, for example, because you have fresh material coming from the deep interior. So if you can drop a CubeSat in a jet, you'd be so happy uh, to uh, the information you get. You need to, um, to go to cryogenic environments because you have a chance to uh, get material that has been uh, pristine, that is pristine, has been preserved for a long period. Uh, it would be very cool to get to the surface of Io, but we are talking about you know, very high temperatures above 1,000 degrees Celsius so, um, in these volcanoes. But once again, if you can get, if you can perform chemistry measurements in this region, get information about the deep interior composition of the object, not just a sufficient measurement that has been altered, for example, by space weathering. Um, and then you do, I mean, it's very important to do systematic science. And the point I want to do, the point I want to do here is that flagship missions are very expensive, but they have returned an absolute amount, great amount of uh, discoveries on systems. And so this is the Saturnian system with, with its various classes of satellites. And the Cassini mission was able to get constraints on all of these satellites. And by doing so, it le this led to a very different understanding on how satellite systems formed. For example, studies showed that the inner moons formed from Saturn's rings. And we had no clue about that uh, before Cassini. Um, and then for the mid-site satellites, there is also uh, some ideas that they also formed from Saturn's rings, which is a, a bit more extreme for an ID, but still uh, a very interesting one. And then you have satellites, I mean, uh, sorry, TV, satellites that have been captured. And then you have Titan that is an astrobiological target. I mean, you get a huge amount of information on a system if you send a flagship mission. So if now we say we don't want flagship, we want to, sell, uh, to send only uh, nanosat, we have to make sure that the return on um, the science uh, is worth it. And same thing if, um, we want to increase our understanding of the solar system. The idea would uh, look at chemical gradients in the solar system. And, uh, and only a big mission, a priori, could go from Earth and target multiple asteroids on its, on its route. 
So, gap filling activities for strategic knowledge gaps. That's a very pompous way to talk about the type of information that uh, would uh, be nice ideas for precursor missions to human exploration. And the, the thing here is, I mean, the big message here is that most of these uh, information that we need to prepare for human exploration require touching the surface. We need to get geotechnical properties. Volatiles can be obtained from orbit with, uh, for example, neutron detection. But we need to get an understanding on how a spacecraft would interact with the surface of a small body or Mars or Phobos and Deimos. So we need to get very close, once again, to, to the surface of the object. For prospecting, we need also to access the surface of uh, small bodies on Mars. And, uh, and basically, that was a big conclusion of the precursor science assessment group that is just completing its assessment of uh, you know, um, strategic knowledge gaps for the human exploration of uh, Mars environment, is that we need to touch the surface of potential targets. Um, okay, so um, now I'm going to talk about, uh, sorry, I'm going to talk about instruments. And here you have a bunch of instruments that are of interest both to uh, this science objectives that I just uh, presented and to um, strategic knowledge gaps and especially uh, research, re resource utilization. Most of these techniques rely on analysis and they are analytical instruments. They, uh, so we also need geophysical instruments, but we greatly need to, to perform more uh, analytical measurements of uh, planetary bodies. And, we, yeah, and here we, um, I present a few ideas of geophysical instruments that can be used in the frame, frame of precursor mission, like drills, uh, scoops, and so on. A lot of um, instruments that can help assess the structure of the regolith. So I was mentioning earlier that macro-overs uh, are leading the field in terms of small instrument development and small subsystems development that could be useful for planetary exploration. And I just mentioned three examples right now. Uh, the probe for the Deep Space 2 mission, the mission failed, but it led to the development of uh, microcontrollers, uh, small electronics, and also a TLS, a small TLS instrument. Uh, the UK Consortium for Penetrators is putting a lot of investment in the development of small instruments that would fit on uh, penetrators, especially for application to the moon. And this uh, is leading the, uh, the field in terms of the development of micro-seismometers, for example, and small accelerometers that, that could be used uh, on CubeSats. And of course, we have uh, the magnificent Rosetta mission with lander uh, fillet uh, that has a dozen instruments of all types, but many, many uh, analytical instruments like APXS, for example. I think there is Sesame and, and others that are also going to be heritage for future missions using CubeSats with small instruments. So if today you, you, you wanted a three kilogram payload using what's currently uh, off the shelf, you could have a microscope that was developed for Phobos Grunt, a tilt meter, uh, that's Mars 96, PANCAM, uh, I think they've been used on several missions, thermal conductivity that was used on, um, on MECA, on uh, Phoenix, and APXS, this one was used on the Pathfinder, for example. So you could build a mission uh, with a three kilogram payload 
and a, a, a payload assembling geophysical instruments and analytical instruments. You could do that already. Here is a list, I'm not going to go into the details, but here is a list of all the small instruments that have high TRL today and, and their mass, and I'm not going into the details, but uh, this will be posted on the website. Um, here we've, ended, uh, we've plotted the power and mass and volume and mass for these various instruments. And what we see is that the geophysical instruments that are currently available can easily fit on a 1U or 2U CubeSat easily. The analytical instruments, they are still a little too big and they are a bit power hungry, but uh, I suspect that in the future power is not going to be an issue anymore. Uh, that's just, just an example of an imaging spectrometer being developed at GPL that uh, is uh, tailored to fit on a CubeSat. This is SAM on MSL. This is a box. And basically, uh, there is going to be uh, a lot of work needed to, uh, to get the capability of an instrument like SAM to uh, fit on, on the box. So the, this is to be kept in mind, is that it's interesting to do geophysical measurements, but what we really would like is to do analytical measurements. And when you see the side of the box, uh, it, it, this is going to, uh, to be a lot of effort. And especially volume is a limitation. It's not so much the mass that is a limitation, but it's the volume, as you can see here. Many instruments are under 500 cubic centimeters, but others are much larger than what uh, three you could uh, accommodate. Um, how much time do I have? Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, okay, so this is a plot that was um, that compares the different techniques used for mass spectrometry, and um, and for instruments that have flown on various missions and for various techniques. I don't want to go into all details, but I want to compare what you get when you have a 20 kilogram instrument with a five kilogram instrument, and to give you a feel of how science is going to scale with mass. I, I don't have the volume, but let's take mass as a reference. Um, you see here that we don't have mass spectrometers below uh, five kilogram right now with a high TRL. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, but so let's take, for example, uh, Sam, I was saying it's 20 kilograms, and it has a range of two to five, uh, two to five thirty-five. Um, for the mass of what you're looking for. If you take Phoenix, a six kilogram instrument, the range of molecules that uh, you can detect is much lower. So I was telling you earlier, the problem is that when you do a space mission, you really are looking for the discovery. Uh, and maybe that's acceptable to have a small range like that uh, on a future mission, but uh, you're still, you're, you're limited. Um, let's go on. Um, uh, sorry. So, uh, Jordana has been doing this exercise uh, to look at, you know, if you want to do Raman spectroscopy in the future, it should be possible to develop a Raman spectrometer that fits within a, a Landy CubeSat. Right now, the state of the art of what you can find off the shelf, but not right hard, uh, is about this size. It's about 1.3 kilograms, this volume, so it's still big and the working distance is five millimeter, but still it seems to be a, a good instrument. Now the question is, you know, what, what is it going to take to have an instrument that is uh, 
tailored for space exploration and they can fit on a CubeSat. It may be a technological uh, challenge. And uh, so in summary for the small instruments, many and mostly geophysical instruments are available with adequately low mass. But improvement in packaging is necessary to decrease the volume. That would be one important uh, finding, is that packaging needs to be improved for these instruments to fit on, on CubeSats. The analytical instruments, the ones that we really would like to use on future missions to achieve uh, the key science objectives of the decadal survey, but also the objectives of uh, human exploration, are low TRL right now. And, uh, but, I mean, there is a good future uh, that will uh, lead to uh, tailoring these uh, instruments for, with the low mass and low volume needed for CubeSat exploration. It's a good time to engage the technologists and the scientists so that they can define the requirements on uh, you know, what we need for flying on CubeSat. There are a lot of uh, miniaturized instruments being developed under the PDUP program, but I'm not sure they are being thought as instruments that could fly on CubeSats. They are thought as instruments that could fly on a small uh, platform, like, for example, filet on a Rosetta type of mission, but not on CubeSats. And this idea is being developed uh, as part of uh, KISS workshop on small body instruments uh, led by Jordana. So we are going also to keep thinking about this on our side. And uh, an important point is that the sampling systems are low TRL right now. So I, I know there, are an increasing there is an increasing number of missions uh, with CubeSat uh, with, um, that are planning to sample small bodies, but sampling is going to be an issue. Um, for a sample return, there is going to be huge requirement on sample packaging in terms of contamination and in terms of planetary protection. And here you have an example of a capsule, I think it's Stardust, uh, at GSC, and you see everybody is very precocious about how they handle that system. The capsule is huge, there is a good reason for that. I mean, uh, MSR, it's very expensive mission, there is a good reason for that, is that you want to get the best samples, you want to retrieve them, preserve their physical integrity, their chemical integrity. So we have to be careful when we say that CubeSats could do everything and bring you whatever sample and so on, because it may not be the sample that the scientists want or need. Um, we have also to be careful with questions like pollution of surface material by propellant. It's an everyday puzzle for people working on sample return missions, something to be uh, accounted for in these mission concepts uh, for sample return from small bodies. And then there may be requirements on sample depth, stratigraphy, and so on, that may be more or less severe depending on the science goal. I'm going to present a few advanced concepts to uh, finish the talk. So just to, uh, once again, something that would be very neat to do with these CubeSats is a systematic and self-consistent uh, um, measurement of the chemistry properties of objects across the solar system. If you could develop a CubeSat that can fit a mass spectrometer and can land on anybody in the solar system and used in any future mission to uh, deep space and outer solar system, I think that would be just great to get this uh, self-consistent uh, chemistry measurements. Um, so, and also there is another thing that, uh, another approach that has been studied a lot, the way we could do geophysics from space uh, to measure fields, for example, having multiple uh, 
spacecrafts that can measure the magnetic field or the gravity field in a coordinated manner. And this has been uh, developed for the moon, for example. There are concepts about that. There is also the idea of doing geophysics at the surface of small bodies by sacrificing these assets. So we want to test if there is electrostatic charging and if it's a source of risk, let's just send a CubeSat. And you know, if it's just destroyed by electrostatic charging, we have the answer to the question. So here are just a few ideas of, um, so there is Ayabusa, for example. Uh, Minerva is not a CubeSat, it's smaller, but it gives a good idea of something cool that can be done with a small uh, nanosat, a small uh, spacecraft on a small body. And Ayabusa 2 is going to have three Minerva and, uh, and uh, finally like a, uh, yeah, a small uh, lander as well. Um, so there is the idea of uh, sending solar sails with CubeSats all over the place. And there is also <coughs> the idea of using the S-pairing with uh, multiple CubeSats and going from one asteroid to the other uh, in the frame of the planetary hitchhiker and cross mission developed by EMS. Here is what I was just suggesting. That's my own concept, but that's a bit crazy. Uh, you go to the Uranian system, so you still need a flagship mission to go there because there is an entry fee when you go to the outer solar system. But you have your big mission, it has a lot of CubeSats and these CubeSats are deployed on the Uranian satellites to probe the chemical gradient across the Uranian system and CubeSats are also used to measure the magnetic field, for example, at the planet. Uh, I have a lot of, all this will be posted. Huh? Um, we've been working with Marco Pavan from Stanford University about a concept involving <coughs> Neo-Surveyor, which is uh, a micro, uh, sorry, a mini-sat as a carrier and um, um, telecom relay, sending small assets at the surface of small bodies and uh, with a lifetime of a few hours or a few days. So it's an idea we've developed as part of the NIAC program. We are looking at a way to uh, use exactly the same idea uh, instead of using a ball, we use a cube, but the idea is to put flywheels and using uh, three flywheels, orthogonal flywheels, uh, and uh, make this, in order to make this CubeSat mobile at the surface of small bodies using microgravity, uh, taking advantage of microgravity for mobility, for example. So it's an idea we've been looking for with my group. Um, lunar cubes, I mean, there are a lot of... Uh, uh, groups interested in CubeSats, but especially I'm excited by this event, the Lunar Cube event organized by uh, Flexur. Um, and the idea is to send uh, cubes so to crater uh, uh, on the moon, especially regions where water is, uh, has been detected. Uh, and that will take place in October. So it will be nice. I, I, I will be there. I hope you'll be there too. And um, because I'm running late. Um, just want to mention the question of um, fractionating, fractionation of spacecraft. We have fractionation of uh, rover uh, concepts that has been developed uh, a lot by various universities, for example, the MIT. And the idea is to take advantage once again of all that research that has been done for small rovers and see how we could adopt this for creating swarms or constellation of, uh, of CubeSats in the future. So there is a lot of heritage to be looked for in uh, the rover area. Conclusions. So just to go back to the key science drivers, 
We want to capture the diversity of small bodies and get multiple measurements within systems or at the surface of a body. We need diversified and coordinated exploration, and this is where I see CubeSats having the major advantage of um, producing platforms that are, can fit on any mission and perform the same type of measurement in a, in a self-consistent manner would be very useful. Um, we want to characterize surface properties at all scales, um, and especially being able to go to discrete features at the surface of objects, for example. Um, and we want to have an idea of the z-dimension, having an idea of uh, dust risk at, uh, in the environment of small bodies, radiations, and gravity structure, for example. And of course, visit high-risk, high-science return areas. Uh, with Andy Clash, we held a workshop in January, and we ended up with a technology roadmap, so I'm not going to go through all the details, but this will be posted of you know, what, everything we would need in order to accomplish these goals. The way forward, uh, much study is needed to really understand what type of exploration is desirable with nanosats, while preserving the low-cost low advantage <laughs> they appear to offer. Right now, I'm not convinced that this CubeSat would necessarily be low-cost in deep space environment, but I don't know. I mean, it's a question for the engineers and technologists in the room. Uh, we need to take advantage of this platform for what they really have to offer, and I don't think it's simple return, personally, looking at the constraint. What I think is that they are good for sacrifice, and um, you just use them to get information on the surface of objects. You don't want to compromise your whole spacecraft, you just send a CubeSat. So in order to fit anything in the box, we need to think out of the box. And uh, that's happening a lot these days, talking with my colleagues. They say, I have my box. You know, how can you fit your experiment within my box? And you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting discussion. <coughs> and I think it's the right time to initiate discussions between scientists, engineers, technologists, and program managers in order to progress. Thank you very much.